This is Chapter 93 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, it's Chris Christie's turn to dish on the White House. Plus, we talk with best-selling author James Rollins about the future of artificial intelligence. We're about halfway through President Trump's first term, and the books from the White House insiders keep on coming. There are two out this week, including Let Me Finish, Trump, The Kushners, Bannon, New Jersey, and the Power of In-Your-Face Politics, from former New Jersey governor and one-time presidential candidate Chris Christie. Our Peter Haskell got a chance to speak with the always outspoken Politico. Having covered you, there weren't many times when other people had the last word. Why the book? Why Let Me Finish? Well, I think there were a lot of things to be told um, from my time as U.S. attorney, my time as governor, and then running for president and then endorsing President Trump. And so I I thought there was some interesting stories to be told, uh, and it gave me the opportunity to answer some things that I didn't have the opportunity to answer while I was still in office. And so all those things made it really attractive to me. And uh, I think the book is a is a good read, an informative read, and I think it's fun. There's a lot of insight about President Trump and the Trump administration. What kind of manager do you think the president is? He's a hands-off manager, um, for sure. Um, he is somebody who um, wants to delegate a lot of authority to folks. Uh, and, and that's why I talk in the book about how important it is for him to have the very best people around him. Um, and he... He has not had the very best people around him, and I think it's minimized um, some accomplishments that could have been much bigger if he had. What does it say about his management if he cannot pick the best people to surround himself? Well, some of these have been mistakes. Some of them were mistakes made by staff around him who made recommendations that were bad, and some of them were mistakes he made. I I detail in the book um, about his selection of Mike Flynn as the National Security Advisor, and he had plenty of people, me most vocally, begging him from June forward to distance himself from Mike Flynn because I could tell he was a, he was trouble. Um, so the president's made some mistakes in some of the people that he selected. He also listened to some advice from folks about personnel selections that weren't great. And thirdly, he allowed the disposal of 30 volumes of really carefully crafted um, transition materials that 140 people worked on over a five-month period um, to be thrown in the garbage and then try to do it you know, by, on the back of an envelope in 71 days. Uh, the presidency doesn't work that way, and I think he's learned that over the last two years. You refer to the transition. You were in charge of the transition. Uh, in the book, you describe the conversation with the president about coming on for the transition. You answer to one person and one person only. That person is me. Did, did it work out that way? It did not. It did not. It worked that way for uh, about three months or so. Um, and then Paul Manafort came to me and told me that um, the family wanted to have an executive committee that the transition reported to that was made up mostly of family members. Paul Manafort, Stephen Mnuchin, who was the finance chairman of the campaign. Um, and, you know, I was okay with that, uh, you know, because quite frankly, I thought, um, and I thought Manafort was right about this, that it gave some insulation to the work that the transition team was doing so that at the end of it, they would have a hard time saying that this wasn't valid work because they were approving it um, in weekly meetings with me and Rich Bagger, who was my old chief of staff as governor and, and was the executive director of the transition. Um, but it didn't turn out that way either. So not only wasn't the promise kept to report only to him, but then the executive committee, which had approved everything we had done, wound up throwing all that work out. It's completely illogical 
and turned out to be insane in terms of its um, effect that it had on the president. In terms of the vice presidency, you were given the indication that you're the guy. President calls you. Are you ready? You basically say, are you asking? And he says, no. And you're given the impression this is going to happen. What do you think happened there? Well, I was told by a senior member of the campaign staff that there was objections from certain members of the family and that they were flying out to Indianapolis to see the candidate um, prior to making an announcement of the decision. And then, as I detail um, extensively in the book, there was a period of about 48 hours there where there were lots of conversations between me and Donald Trump about the vice presidency again um, and ultimately a decision to pick Mike Pence. So I don't know exactly what happened, but what I can tell you is that it went from are you ready um, to are you sure you want this? Um, and that was after a meeting with the family at 6 a.m. in Indianapolis um, the day after he asked me, are you ready? So, you know, I think we can all draw certain conclusions from that. So what does it say about a chief executive who says you answer to one person and one person only, doesn't happen, takes your transition work, throws it out, says, are you ready? Then says, well, I don't think you're ready. You're done. What does that say? I don't think that on the transition piece, I don't think he even knew that was happening. I think that was done by people below him. And and they said, we're going to handle it. We'll make it better. Um, But I think on the other things, I think I I detail in the book that I think the president at times has a difficult time delivering bad news. Um, He wants everybody to like him and he wants everybody to be happy. And I detail a part of the book during the transition when he tells Ryan's Priebus, um, just go downstairs and get Chris a job that'll make him happy. I want Chris to be happy. Um, I never worried about all that much when I was governor about making people happy. Um, That wasn't my style. And I think that, that when the president resorts to that, it doesn't serve him well. He should worry about everybody serving him well and serving the country well and worry less about making people happy. Is there any chance this president does not run for re-election? And the second part of the question, which is somewhat related, would you consider running for president again, if not 2020 another time? The president, I think it's overwhelmingly likely that he will run for re-election. I guess there's always a chance that someone will decide not to, but in all my conversations with him, um, he's indicated to me he is running for re-election and intends to fight hard for re-election. In terms of me, I don't have any plans to do that, but you never say never. Um, I Typical politician. Yeah, well, listen, but then if I said never... And then I went and did it. You'd say, typical politician, he said he wouldn't, and he was. So, you know, you can't win as a politician on this answer at all. But the truth is that I, it's the only job I'd ever be interested in running for again um, is an executive position. I, you've, you, As you mentioned in the, in the lead-up, you covered me for eight years, longer, really, covered me as U.S. attorney as well. I don't think you see me with a legislative personality. I'm not one of 435 in the House or one of 100 in the Senate. My personality is to grab things by the horns and run them. And uh, so it's president is one of the only jobs I could see myself running for again or, or be in charge of some type of operation. I think those are my best abilities and skills and, and the things that I enjoy doing the most. And so one never says never in this business because then you'll pick up this tape and say, see, you know, in January of 2019, you said never and now you're doing it. So, you know, you leave it open because, um, you know, and it doesn't cost anybody anything at this point because I'm in private life, not public life. Last question. You describe what it's like within this administration. Why would you or anybody who knows what they're doing want to work there? 
because you want to do good work for the country. And when I've considered... And get your needs taken out. Well, I mean, but that's... Listen, nobody ever said that this was an easy business. You've watched it up close for a long time. Um, And in the end, if you concluded that what you could do for the country outweighed the risks to you personally, um, then you do it. And because it's about the country. It's not just about any particular president. When a president asks you to do something... Um, if you think you have the skill, ability, and desire to do it, then go on and do it and try to make a difference. And so I would never say to anybody that it would be stupid or wrong to go in. You just have to go in with your eyes wide open and understand what you're entering and try to be prepared for it and then try to do the job the best way you can. And um, for me, that job has not been offered yet that would make me want to take that dive. But I can't say that it won't be. Um, and so I'll give you another one of those answers, you know. I don't know, but I, I certainly have said no to Secretary of Labor, Secretary of Homeland Security, um, Ambassador to Italy, Ambassador to the Vatican. Um, I've said no to a bunch of things. Um, and I, I, So I don't think I'm going to be going into this administration, but one never knows. Governor, thank you. It's great to see you again. World-renowned physicist Stephen Hawking once warned that the emergence of artificial intelligence, or AI, could be the worst event in the history of our civilization. And he's not alone in thinking an all-knowing digital entity could be dangerous. Frankly, the thought is terrifying. And if you don't agree with me now, you will, after reading Crucible, the latest book from best-selling thriller writer James Rollins. We recently spoke about the scary and not-too-distant future scenarios. AI, you know, currently it's, it's everywhere. It's integrated into our lives pretty, pretty intimately. You know, we have Siri in our pocket. We have Alexa on our countertops. You know, the AI is now driving cars. But Crucible deals with a, a coming crisis in, in AI, and that's the, uh, the creation of the first true human-like self-aware artificial intelligence. Now, this may sound a little bit like science fiction, but we're right at the cusp of seeing that happen. And when that does, uh, it's an event that Stephen Hawking described as the worst event in the history of civilization. Uh, Elon Musk says that when this happens, it will lead to World War III. Even uh, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, said that you know, when this comes about, whoever controls that tech will control the world. And so I did a lot of research with a bunch of AI researchers and asked them, you know, when when do you think this is going to happen? When do you think we'll you know, we'll cross this threshold into the next level of AI? And the consensus from the straw poll from the 22 researchers I was consulting was anywhere between five and 15 years from now. So it's not too far in the future, definitely in our lifetime, which is disconcerting enough. But two of the researchers said, hey, Jim, you know, we think we're already there. You know, we have our, our ear to the third rail of AI research, and the rumblings we're hearing down that track indicate somebody's already working on this. Somebody's already achieved that goal. And they showed me proof, some of the proof that's in this book. I had changed some names to avoid slander, but it's in there. Um, so it, this isn't, we're not talking about Terminator with, you know, some far-fetched sci-fi plot. This is, you know, exactly what's going on in AI research today. Uh, it's what's on uh, these AI researchers' lab tables right behind their shoulders, and it's where we're headed very uh, in the very near future. Do you agree with Elon Musk? I know something else that he said is that AI is like summoning the demon. Exactly, because at this point, we don't know what's going to happen. Even the AI researchers are, are disconcerted because once we cross that threshold, 
that new sort of super intelligence isn't going to sit idle. It's going to be very busy. It's going, if it's self-aware, it's going to have the same needs we do, which is it wants to survive. It needs to acquire assets to make sure it survives, which would be energy and, 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 and physical resources. And it may believe that we're a competition for those resources. It may decide that it doesn't need us around anymore. So it could be we may be inventing the final invention, the last invention, before we uh, before you know, basically we may be engineering our own destruction. And which is why I guess in the book and hopefully in real life, is there really this race to create a benevolent AI? I asked these AI researchers, okay, well, this is a little scary. We, we're you know, potentially creating something, and if it's not already done within the five to, five to 15 years from now, what can we do? And they were saying, well, you know, the goal for a very, unfortunately, a very narrow fraction of these AI researchers is to try to create a friendly AI, one that's sympathetic and empathetic to us. And they you know, told me some techniques that are being done by IBM, by Google, even today, to try to, to build morality into these AIs. And again, those are uh, techniques I use in this book. Uh, there's a young, rudimentary AI that appears in this book called Eve. And over the course of the novel, her, her young researcher is trying to sculpt her towards that goal. And the techniques she uses are the techniques I, I, use, I learned from talking to those AI researchers. What led you to connect witches with AI. Well, I always was like sort of folding in these historical mysteries, you know, little tidbits of history that are a little bit surprising. And for this book, for example, a book deal does deal with the persecution of witches, which is uh, went on for about 400 years, from about the mid 1400s to to the mid 1800s. And uh, there's sort of a bit of a conflicted relationship between the Catholic Church and witches, even though it might not seem that way, since uh, the Catholic Church, specifically in this book with the Spanish Inquisition, led to the death of 60,000 heretics and witches during those 400 years. But also, oddly enough, I I learned that there actually is a Catholic patron saint for witches. Uh, I learned this when I was traveling in Spain. There's actually a cult to uh, to St. Columba. St. Columba was a a witch in in the 9th century, According to legend, she met Christ on the road. Christ said, you must convert to Christianity. She did, but she did not stop being a witch. She was eventually beheaded for her faith, and she became the patron saint for witches. Now, this is a Catholic patron saint not against witches, but in support of witches, which I just find that that, that conflict, that sort of the, uh, the oddity of that, very intriguing. And so that becomes a part of the story. I don't want to exactly tell you how A connects to B, because that's part of the fun of the story. But uh, if you want to know more about the Spanish Inquisition, little secrets about that, little mysteries around that, about a book called Amalius Malafarcum, The Hammer of Witches, uses the sort of witch hunter's Bible that's also in the book and also eventually ties into the current story about AI. I love that your book leads to even more reading, and you give us all these resources at the end if we want to look up everything that you've discussed and, and weaved into your story. Yeah, I like doing that. I have a, a what's true, what's not section at the end where I pull aside the curtain and I show you exactly where all this came from. And so if there's any topics in the history of the science that intrigues you, I leave you a few breadcrumbs to follow. How do you decide on what's the right mix between real life stuff and the stuff that you make up? You know, at this point, I try to blur those as well as I can together. Uh, you know, my goal is when I write a book is to entertain. Obviously, I want people turning pages late into the night, and uh, but I also like hopefully you know for a book to have resonance, uh, to have significance. I think that you know we turn that last page and close the cover. You know, hopefully, I've left you something to think about. 
And so that's one of the, the joys of this is, you know, taking that big spotlight that I can have and shining it on things, like shining in this book on the fact that there's very few researchers that are actually pursuing a friendly AI. It's much easier just to pursue a general AI. But, you know, my goal with this book, if it's going to be a cautionary tale, is to maybe say, hey, maybe we need to, you know, pull the reins a little bit on this research and concentrate on on, on building morality, empathy, and sympathy into this AI that's that's you know, soon going to share this planet. I mean, it won't be too much longer until, theoretically, we're going to be sharing this planet with an intelligence that's uh, equal to ours, if not superior. And another thing that you love to do, we also have a lot of great places being blown up and set on fire. <laughs> <laughs> yes, my goal is, you know, it is to is to destroy every UNESCO World Heritage Site on the planet before my career is over. So how many more do you have left to go, do you, no. you estimate? <laughs> not, not many. I've, I've, I've... <laughs> Well, the new book is Crucible. James Rollins, thank you for taking some time out to talk to us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And that is all she wrote for this week. Next time, we raise a glass and extol the virtue of that perfect pint with beer journalist John Hull. Yep, that's his real job. Until then, catch us doing our real job on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books.